thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. You don't have to be Scottish to enjoy Burns Night. Here's Robert Irvine, reader in Scottish literature at the University of Edinburgh, in a clip from the Naked Scientists. The first Burns Supper happened only a few years, maybe six or seven years after Burns' death, and it was simply his friends uh, gathering on the anniversary of what they thought was his birthday to toast his memory. Now, these men were all Freemasons. Burns was a Freemason. Freemasons like inventing rituals and making speeches and drinking. And I think that is the basic kind of recipe that then was developed and sophisticated over the decades into the Burns Supper that we're uh, used to today, which can be a very complex event. And whiskey, of course, plays its part in that event. We can talk about alcohol as a way of celebrating and being sociable. We can speak of its symbolic significance as the blood of Christ. And drinking is certainly an ancient custom. When Jesus attended the wedding at Cana, there is every chance that the wine there, which he obligingly replenished when it ran out, came from the vineyards that are still operating today, producing the renowned Lebanese red Chateau Moussard. The late Roger Scruton wrote somewhat romantically, A glass of wine expresses the place, the way of life and the culture that produced it. It is a record of the human spirit and a distillation of climate, soil and geography. You could make a similar claim about whiskey. But alcohol, of course, can be problematic. Just take a stroll around any city at 11 o'clock at night, particularly on a weekend, and you'll see what I mean. And, of course, in the Islamic tradition and certain Christian denominations, alcohol is forbidden. With me to discuss the theology of alcohol are Rabbi Reuven Lee, director of the Chabad Center here in Cambridge, Dr. Esther Miriam Wagner, executive director here of the Wolf Institute, and Duncan Hay, manager of the Bridge Street branch of Cambridge Wine Merchants, who is not only studying for the Diploma in Wine, but has an exam next week. That's right. Okay, share with us, Duncan. What's the exam on? So the exam's on vines and vinification. Um, it's essentially 
the growing of grapes that go into the making of wine and the making of wine. Um, it's a very technical exam centered specifically around how wine is made before it's put in the bottle, up to the point that it's put in the bottle. Okay, let me ask a question and please answer it untechnically, which is what makes a good wine? Balance, I think. Most important thing, I think if you, you'll get a different answer depending on who you ask, but generally we all tend to agree that balance between alcohol, acidity, tannin, flavor compounds is the most important thing. If anything's out of balance, it tastes off. So it's all about balance. Now, there are unbalanced views of wine in, amongst different religions. Miriam, in, in your period, in the, the pre-modern period, what, what's going on in the attitudes towards wine? Well, my expertise is on the Cairo Geniza and medieval Cairo. And, of course, there is a prohibition uh, in, in Muslim uh, Islamic law uh, on wine and on beer and in the Hadith as well and on, on all sorts of other alcohols, but people always did like to drink. So we see, for example, a lot of interfaith interaction between um, uh, Muslims and Jews in bars in Alexandria. There are Jews running bars in Alexandria. They're importing wine from, from Crete, from Italy, and uh, these are meeting places. Um, or, for example, we see Muslim officials going to inspect monasteries and they use these visits to drink wine there and drink beer there. Um, so people did like that tipple, even in, the, in medieval Egypt. And uh, we see alcohol being used as an interface medium, really. So they went to the monasteries not to drink wine secretly. It was open drinking, wasn't it? It was relatively open, as long as it wasn't. It's a bit like the um, sort of... Um, carry and cover in the US. I mean, if you run around with a paper bag, people know what's in there, but there is some sort of, you know, modicum of, of respect for the law that you don't show that you have a bottle in there. So, Reuven, I don't think Jews run around with a paper bag covering their wine, do they? No, not, in, not at all. Um, wine is a central feature of Jewish life, especially ritual life. So, um, a, a glass of wine will be the, the manner in which we sanctify the Sabbath, the introduction to Shabbat, and also the going out of Shabbat to the Havdalah ceremony is also a blessing over a glass of wine. And some of the most important um, ritual events of a person's life cycle, um, both the Brit Milah and the wedding, um, are performed over a glass of wine. So there's a very, and the rabbis gave it a distinctive blessing. So as opposed to all other liquids and drinks, Wine is seen as the sort of the king of all the all, all the all of the drinks, and it's given its distinctive blessing, bore pre hagafen. But that's vine, isn't it? Rather than wine, I could be a teetotaler in Jewish, couldn't I? You you could most definitely. There are ways of uh, avoiding it through grape juice. Um, however, um, wine is definitely seen as preferable, and it's seen as um, having a sort of a value and a, an importance which the grape juice can't really live up to. One of my son's favorite festivals is Purim, not always for good reasons. Perhaps you can tell us a bit about wine and Purim. Well, the Talmud describes to us how one of the uh, features of the celebration of the Purim festival, um, when the Jews were saved from the evil Haman, um, is to celebrate through drinking to the point of intoxication. The way it's described there is how a person is able to go beyond usual functions of their consciousness and that their usual forms of understanding. So wine is seen as an alcohol in general as a way of elevating oneself and engaging with a, a part of oneself which is usually hidden. Um, so we have uh, the, uh, the idea of nichnas yayin yatsa sod, 
when the wine goes in, the secrets come out. Um, and part of the Purim festival is about unveiling and revealing parts of the self which would otherwise be hidden. Now, obviously, the, the goal is to be able to do that responsibly and in a way where it's productive and spiritually uplifting rather than degrading. But that, some, that takes a bit of practice. What about this uh, question, Duncan, of um, drinking too much? I mean, Reuven has said it very gently, um, but that must be an issue for you with the uh, practice and retail of selling wine. Yeah, it's certainly an issue. Um, you were mentioning at 11 o'clock, uh, any city in, in this country, you can hit the high street or hit wherever the closest bars are. And uh, I, I know every time I'm on my way home from work on Fridays and Saturdays, I'm witnessing it. Excess is certainly an issue, and it's something that can be addressed in many different ways. But on our side of things, we fortunately aren't dealing in, to put it gently, the lower-priced alcohols that people tend to binge drink with. We try to cater to a, a price point where the producers are getting much more recognition and, and value out of the sales that we make. And as a result, people aren't really drinking in excess. It's a, it's a wine for wine or spirits for enjoying instead of elevating to a, or I should say, devolving to a different place. <laughs> Miriam, in the medieval period, are there examples of, um, of, of either the wine elevating one and one's spirituality and, and, and one's um, intelligence? or? Well, I mean, th- that's the interesting thing, because there's a whole genre in Arabic poetry dedica- dedicated to wine. So it's the, it's the wine poetry. And that's the really interesting thing because even after the um, uh, the arrival of Islam, this wine poetry doesn't stop. People continue to recite these wine poems, um, even though there's a prohibition on wine. So it's this very, very interesting paradoxon. And then, of course, if you look at Islamic art uh, in Umayyads, for example, if you look to Granada or if you look at other places, um, wine drinking is still part of the iconography up to a certain period. I mean, Islam really changes um, in the ninth century, and it changes again in the thirteenth century. Uh, but at, in certain times, you still see wine being quite celebrated. What changed in the ninth and thirteenth centuries? Well, <laughs> in the ninth century, you see this sort of in- intellectification of Islam. I suppose you have these Persian grammarians coming in who suddenly say what's the right way of speaking Arabic. You have um, people codifying all sorts of uh, 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 things for the first time. So a lot of the law gets written down for the first time, which was oral before. Um, so that's really changing uh, Islam in a way that it becomes more rigid. And you see the same change again in the 13th century. You have the Mongols arriving. You have uh, suddenly non-Arab dynasties uh, ruling over um, most of the Islamic countries. And these come from places like Kurdistan, from uh, converts from Armenia, uh, places that are much, much further east. And for them, I think, to sort of connect themselves to the land, they need to use a very, very rigid kind of Islam. And, and, and you know, this is what really changes Islam from the inside. And how does that affect the wine? Were we were, were Muslims more careful? About oh, it became much, much more prohibitive. Um, so from the 13th, 14th century onwards, you see virtually no references to wine. I mean, it's slightly different again in the Ottoman period. Um, but under the Ayyubids and the Mamluks, there's a very different attitude toward drinking. Under the Fatimids, so in the 10th, 11th, 12th century, you still have this amazing festival in, 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 in Cairo on the Nile banks where people get together, drink, um, make fun of, of, of dignitaries, make fun of each other. 
um, everyone becomes for one day becomes the same. And this this basically um, goes away from the 13th century onwards. Is there a parallel story in, in Jewish history where periods of time where wine was more um, part of the Jewish practice or was it consistent throughout as far as you know? I'm not aware of any lulls in the period, maybe purely just to the lack of availability. Um, it was not always easy in certain areas where Jews would have been expelled to for them to obtain wine. Um, so that, that might have made things slightly more difficult. Um, However, we, what we say when we drink, say, l'chaim, to life, is already documented nearly 2,000 years ago in early rabbinic literature. And there is, in, in that sort of, um, that greeting of l'chaim, when we say, when we drink together, is an acknowledgement of the danger that can come with drinking. We fear that this, this wine could lead us to something to the opposite of life. So we have to, um, at the outset, state that we're doing this for the, for the ideal purposes, because in the, if we're talking theologically, if we go back to the Bible, um, the, the early instances of wine are not usually very positive. So we have the explicit uh, discussions of Noah when he comes out after the flood, also Lot um, um, after when he thought the world was destroyed and two very negative experiences. And similarly, um, one of the Talmudic opinions of what the fruit was in the Garden of Eden was um, was a, was grapes, and it, so it was actually wine that led to the all of the problems resulting in drinking and eating from that tree. So we're we're, we're fully aware when we every time we drink that it could lead to um, the opposite of positive outcomes in life. So we, we we sort of give each other a blessing at the outset. Please, please let this one be for life. But all these examples you mentioned, they're all connected with sexuality, right? It's always sexuality in wine and this, how, how this sort of goes hand in hand. And then you find in, in Jewish law that it is forbidden to engage in sexual relations um, when a person is drunk. Um, similarly, one is not allowed to pray when they're drunk. A priest is not allowed to uh, serve in the temple if they're drinking. And even today, when a, when a Kohen will be called upon to give a blessing in the congregation, they're not allowed to have drunk beforehand. So we, we, we do put strong restrictions in certain areas of ritual life where we know that wine and drinking in general could have uh, dangerous effects. Duncan, we've heard a little bit about the um, um, religious aspects of wine. Now, when you're a retailer, do you sell much religious wine or is there, in your studies, is there, what's the difference between secular and, uh, and religious wine, if there is such a thing? Well, I mean, part of the reason Reuven is here is, is he's a customer of ours. So we do... <laughs> specialize in kosher wine at least we try to have a pretty broad range of it um and you know one of the points that i was kind of talking about with some of my colleagues is uh, there's there's a very new and interesting health craze I, i use the word craze i shouldn't but a dogmatic approach to health in the world that approaches uh religious standards almost and you know people treat their personal trainers like priests and their gyms like places of worship and as a result there's actually a a, for us somewhat significant decline in uh, alcohol sales just over the last couple years people are approaching alcohol as a, a negative health component and so it's something that you'll see over the next year or two, significantly more non-alcoholic beers and certainly a lot more non-alcoholic gins. Um, it's something that we're looking into to stock because people are avoiding alcohol, not just in January now. And is alcohol unhealthy or is this just the craze of the moment? It's a very good question. Um, 
I think most of the science that we see shows that alcohol is indeed unhealthy. Um, I think that there are aspects of it that are healthy that are a little bit more nuanced than the scientific approaches that are taken could really quantify. Um, it's it's hard to replace a glass of wine at the end of the day after a very long day and its relaxing properties. It's hard to replace what a bottle of wine with a very good meal and that combination can do. It's it's almost a spiritual thing, and I, I certainly and obviously consider that a positive. <laughs> I went to a lecture once uh, um, in, in, in in St. John's here in, uh, in Cambridge, And the speaker was a physician and he claimed, and I think I, I've taken this away and I've, I'm always thinking about this now. He said that the positive effects of alcohol completely outweigh all negative effects, even unless you're a real alcoholic. But he said there's so much um, sort of positive uh, cell stress and so other things that are really associated with health on it. Well, I think I'll have to take a sip of water and tell you that we've reached the halfway point of this discussion. You're listening to Naked Reflections, and my guests this week are Reuven Lee, Esther Miriam Wagner, and Duncan Hay. I guess we should reflect on how inebriation actually works, and one way of doing that is by considering the best hangover cures. Here's theoretical chemist Alex Tom speaking on a sort of public services post-Christmas edition of The Naked Scientists. They found their best combination that would get rid of the acetaldehyde quickly, and it was a combination of pear sweet lime and coconut water. So we've got three different liquids here. So there's some pear juice, freshly squeezed, some lime juice, freshly squeezed, and a little bottle of coconut water. And we're going to mix them together. I have a little cocktail shaker here, just uh, for science. Cheers. Another hangover cure that I've heard is about a banana milkshake. The viscous liquid is better retained by the body than water and helps combat dehydration, while the banana element provides quick energy. Or so they tell me. I'd like to turn to the mind-altering substances issue because for me personally, as you said, Duncan, at the end, the glass of wine at the end of the evening is a way of kind of relaxing, but also it changes one's whole being. It, 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 one, one's body, one's chemicals seem to change. Is, is that a figment of my imagination or is that actually going on? Not at all. That's the alcohol. <laughs> um, there are also other compounds that are do somewhat complicated things to the body, but essentially alcohol. And more than anything, I think the ritual of drinking a glass of wine is going to fire some dopamine through you and cause some relaxation. Um, I think there's also something that isn't often discussed is, is the the pensiveness that is a glass of wine. I mean, there's so much to consider in a glass of wine. You can consider the history that went into making it. You can consider the chemical composition of it you can consider the culture that is behind wine and then there's just the economics it's wine is such a beautiful thing in that to learn about wine is to just learn about humanity and that's something that we've definitely discussed it, it has a very long and rich history i mean the way people describe mindful eating where you really focus on the food that you're eating and you and you, you take a moment to think where it came from and how it was produced and how it tastes and at every moment you're stopping and thinking about that is sort of really performed every time we drink wine or whiskey, mm -hmm. at least if they, they taste good. Is, is whiskey part of the Jewish tradition as well then? Increasingly so. Um, obviously, within religious communities, there's the end of the spectrum who are usually quite austere and are not very um, excited about the proliferation of uh, drinking and drinking clubs and kiddushim and all those types of things where drinking uh, takes place. 
Um, however, there are others who really do engage with it. And I think it reflects the sort of the, the broad spectrum of, a, of why people or how people engage with religion. So some people are very much into the, the sense of trans, transcendence, maybe associated with a mysticism. So there's, there's this constant striving to move beyond uh, the confines which they find themselves in. And so alcohol can be a tool and a means by which to, um, to move beyond um, where they're at. Um, whereas there are others who really appreciate the, the order, the obedience that comes with religion, the, the, the strictures, and that makes them feel secure. And so for them, the alcohol is, is a far more dangerous um, introduction to their religious life. In the medieval period, Miriam, uh, do we find aspects and descriptions of alcohol as dangerous, intoxicating? I think so. But I, th I don't think there's any difference between the modern period and the medieval period. I'm always struck how differently different alcohols affect the same person. Um, if I drink beer, I get very tired. I'm a very happy drunk on gin. So I get a very, very happy to a very, very happy place very quickly. Um, whereas with wine, I'm usually like a melancholic drunk. And, and Ruben was talking about this, this sort of reaching to other aspects of your personality or of your soul, I suppose, that you never normally touch. I like it when some of my friends who are quite cold in, in everyday life, when they, they start drinking and suddenly they become very sweet or they become very emotional. And this sort of transformation, I think, is what really attracts people also to alcohol because you experience yourself in a very different way. And, uh, yeah, this would have been the same in the medieval period. And I think socially, what you're bringing up the social aspect of it is the, the way that people can connect um, over, over a glass of wine or over a wee dram or something. Um, I think people do really um, develop relationships in a way um, that they wouldn't do otherwise. No, that's absolutely right. In the composition of alcohol, Duncan, um, do, the, do the different types of wine or alcohol achieve different things? It's a good question. Again, I think, as is demonstrated by what we've just heard, they do. Um, as far as the science goes, I think it's unknown. But I know in my experience, different alcohols, different spirits give you a, a different level of transformation. Um, I know for me, wine, maybe because... I'm marginally obsessed with it, is, is uh, a very pensive thing where beer, again, it makes me tired as well and whiskey makes me somewhat depressive and I don't drink very much gin. Um, but yeah, I think there's a, a real difference in whether or not that's the chemical composition or whether or not that's just the mindset that you go into when you start to drink is unknown. Jewish wine, Reuven, is very sweet, or at least the wine that's given out at synagogue. Maybe some of the sort of more expensive uh, Rothschild wine is, is more traditional, but some of the Powin number four or Powin number 10, I mean, really? We really have to move beyond this stereotype of kosher wine. If you go to the Cambridge wine merchants, you'll find that there are no sweet wines um, because um, I'm very much on the board of choosing what <laughs> wines should be selected. Um, one of the reasons why sweet wines are very common and popular amongst people who don't drink a lot of wine um, is because, well, I think you'll find people from places like Hungary, there are, there are a lot of sweet wines there. And so the Jewish communities that came after the war from there probably had an interest. I think Concord grapes in upstate New York produce a sweet wine. And so a lot of the wine producing um, in, in America 
became sweet wine. Um, similarly in Israel, the Poland wines, um, I think these were the, the grapes that were easy to get hold of um, and they didn't require too much sophistication to produce. Um, and then you had wine. Um, also, for, if you're giving it to children, um, they usually prefer sweet wine. So if you're giving at the kiddish time, if everyone's going to get a little cup of wine and you're giving it out to the small children, they're going to prefer something that's sweet than a, than a good wine, which isn't sweet. And there's a history there. I mean, pre-industrialization, sweetness was a luxury. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't something that was easy to come by. And wine was one of those things that you could get sweetness from. If you over-ripen your grapes and you make wine with it, the yeast die before all the sugar is turned into alcohol, so you end up with a wine that still has sugar in it, and that was a very special thing. I mean, you mentioned Tokai for several hundred years. All of the royalties of Europe were buying Tokai, and it was the most expensive wine in the world because it was sweet, and in other parts of the world it was very difficult to make something with that level of sweetness. And you, of course, come from a wine family, don't you? Uh, yes. I mean, my brother's a winemaker in Oregon, a very small production. And my grandfather had a lot of uh, vines planted in his retirement and loved to lord over his, his land and his vines. But I I'm, I'm, was born in wine country. And when I was growing up, Oregon saw kind of a second renaissance in winemaking. And uh, so, yeah, I definitely, I definitely have wine literally and figuratively in my blood. From an early age, you started? From an early age, yeah. And, of course, in the Jewish tradition, children drink wine? Um, small, small amounts, let's be clear, um, before we get any uh, complaints through the podcast. Um, small amounts of wine, even uh, uh, very early on, uh, a child will be offered. Nowadays, it's much more common to give grape juice. My, my young children prefer grape juice to the, to the dry wines that I usually serve at my table. So um, I think that's also quite common. Um, but they say that children who grow up in households where alcohol is normalized and is not, uh, and people are not drinking to excess uh, are hopefully going to be protected a little bit more from when they go through their teenage years and early 20s and hopefully will avoid the binge drinking that, as we were talking earlier, became so, uh, become so common. How do we stop the problem of um, abuse of alcohol. Obviously, if one's addicted, it's a slightly different situation. But do we have a bigger problem in this country than in others? What, is it ma a matter of the price point? I mean, um, just walking on the Cambridge streets late at night, uh, particularly on a weekend, as I said at the beginning, is, is not a happy experience. It's a very difficult problem. Um, it's an ancient problem as well. Mark Antony himself was known for vomiting on the Senate floor. Um, about every civilization that has consumed alcohol has dealt with this problem, and I don't know that anyone's come up with a great solution for it yet. It's not one I, that I... I also think you have to consider that most people um, have at some point had in their teenage years a sort of a rite of passage, um, which hopefully hasn't ended in anything too dangerous, but it, it's a, it is a very sort of healthy way of um, learning something about oneself, um, being intoxicated, and as William Blake would say, the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. So hopefully those experiences bring a person to a greater understanding of themselves and the people around them. And if, we, if we're going to be too uh, restrictive and try and think that this is something that has to be avoided, I worry sometimes about people who have never been through that experience and have always been in total control. They haven't been exposed to the possibility of vulnerability that comes with being intoxicated, and which could be a healthy thing to develop in one's personality. Well, I think we've reached the bottom of the glass. And thanks to my guests, Reuven Lee, Esther Miriam Wagner and Duncan Hay. And thanks to you too for listening.
If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback, or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Naked Reflections is also available from your favorite podcast provider. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.